The following Bible study is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. For more studies and information, go to graceteaching.net. And now, here's our Bible study. Jim is uh, working today, so he has Thanksgiving off. And so I'm covering for him, but he's covering for me next Sunday. We'll may likely be here, but uh, never know what the roads are going to be like getting back or what time we'll get on the road on Sunday morning. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the time you give us together. We're thankful for what it means to be members of the body of Christ. Uh, we're thankful for the fellowship side of that, but there's also a responsibility side. And as we Look at your word today. We ask that you might help us to uh, better think about responsibility that we have to others. And we thank you for that then. Amen. So just kind of to kick this off, I want you to go to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. That's not where we're going to be today, but we're going to look at an illustration here. In Galatians 6, that most of us are, with which most of us are familiar, um, we're going to talk about what I think is a responsibility that we have, and as I look across this group, I think all of us, I think all of us have this responsibility. Um, and it's a responsibility of looking out for other believers. And you're going to understand this a little bit better why I'm saying we all have this particular responsibility in a minute. But in Galatians chapter 6, 1, now this is responsibility is going to fall on some of you. Because some of you, I hope all of you, are spiritual, but some of you may be, may not. Some of you may just show, have showed up today, uh, and you're not. That's a possibility. I could be that same way, but it says in verse 1 of Galatians 6, Brethren, if a man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or meekness, tameness, looking out for yourselves lest you should be tempted. So this statement is saying that if a believer, if you... See a believer and they are, what's it say? What? They're caught in a trespass. And we're not here to, I'd like to sit on this passage and talk about this, but I, but if I do that, it'll take us five minutes or better, and we won't ever get to the passage we want to get to today. But this shows us that there's responsibility. You see a brother caught in a trespass, you're spiritual, you have a responsibility to go and restore them. I don't care who that is. Husband, wife, kids, parents, friend. If you see them, your job is to try to encourage them to adjust their thinking, to say, hey, who are we in, who are we in Christ? Who are we in Christ? Think about this. I want you to go over to 1 John chapter 2, and this is where we'll, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. In 1 John chapter 2, because the, the real... Uh, point of this study that we're going to look at is because uh, this kind of is the thing that kicked it off when I've been thinking about this. And if you watch the little daily videos, I dealt with this a couple weeks ago at least on those about, oh, we don't have this set up. I'm sorry. Let me just a second here. There we go. Okay. Um, we um, uh, would have been... Uh, talking about the problem of, of antichrists. Come on. You can do it. I did it earlier. Um, talking about the problem of antichrists and what 
Um, how antichrists affect or negatively, go away, there we go, how antichrists negatively affect um, believers in the body of Christ. And this is over in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and uh, if you go on down to verse 18, notice what Paul says in verse 18. Uh, children, children, if you, if you um, that word, we've talked about it before, but if you look over here on the right, it's that word right under 1 John, it's that word paideia, paideia. It has to be, it has to do with a trainable child, a child that can actually uh, be taught and can learn things. Uh, and that comes pretty early in life, I think. I think kids begin learning stuff much earlier than some parents think they can. But little children or trainable children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So he's addressing this specifically to believers who are trainable. But by the fact that he uses the word paideia, he's indicating that they're not, what word might be is they're not yet, they're not yet an adult. So they're not really mature at this moment in time. So if we go back up in the context here, and um, I'm going to put you to work on this part, and you're going to help me with this here, if we can, if I can get this to go. Oh, come on up here. There we go. So we're going to read back in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to put in uh, uh, in verse 12. So let's read with verse 12 down through here. Follow along real careful because I would be asking questions. You're going to help. It says, I'm writing to you little children. This is different than the word paideia. This is the word technia. This is a born one. And I believe, as you go through this letter, I don't believe that that refers to just one group of this. I believe this refers to everybody in the church, okay? All believers are technia. And so he says, I'm writing to you little children, because or little born ones, because your sins are forgiven you. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who has been from a beginning. I'm writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I've written to you, Pydia. Now he changes to children here, to Pydia, because you have known the Father. I've written to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So we've got these three groups, okay? So what, what's, uh, what's group number one? Here, just a second. Let me, let me clear this out here. There we go. Okay, so what's group number one? Okay, so we have we have children in the first group, young children, okay? And that's our word, we'll just write it in English, technia, okay? And who does that include? Everybody, that's everyone, okay? So everyone falls under category number one. What's the second group that he lumps in here or brings in? What? Fathers, okay? So fathers are the next group. Okay, and that's the Greek word. Um, I'll just go. We'll just go pater. It's actually pat, pate, patra, but uh, we'll go with pater for the moment. Okay, because that doesn't mean anything to you, I guess. Anyway, that refers to everyone or some. Some. Okay, so there are some. There are some who are 
in the father category. And then what's the last group that he goes to in this first set? Young men. Young men. Okay. Young men. And again, okay, and that's the Greek word neoniskos or neoniskoi because it's plural. Is that all or some? some? That's some. Okay. Now you go down to the next group that we have here. It says, and I'm writing uh, in verse 14, I, uh, excuse me, at the end of verse uh, 13, I have written to you, what's the word there? Children. Okay. So um, just for clarity, children is fine. I do not have a problem with them. But just for clarity, we're going to say young learners. Young learners. And that's our Greek word, paideia. Okay. Paideia. And that, again, is that everyone or some? some? That's some. So we have three categories, or four categories here. We have one that includes everybody. That's the technia. Okay? We're all born ones. And then we have some who are fathers. What does he say about the fathers? Let's go back up here. Let's classify these. Well, let's go with these. Number one. Let's put down here. Number one. What? What is it that the children know? And back in verse 12. Okay. Sins are forgiven. Sins are forgiven. Can you be a believer and not know that your sins are forgiven? What do you when you believe the gospel, what's the purpose of believing the gospel? Yeah. To be forgiven, to have your sins forgiven, yeah. And with that, there comes a declaration of righteousness. So that's when you're presenting the gospel, that's what you're talking to people about. You're talking to them about their sins being forgiven. If they don't get that, they've got a problem. Now that doesn't account for the fact that you might have believers that wonder, well, what about the sins that happen after I believe now? And we certainly have problems with that. And so some people, some believers have questions about eternal security. That was the, that was the discussion question at Jeremy's la, uh, this last week at the, the men's group is uh, once saved, always saved is the way some people put it. That was the way the question was worded. And I appreciated that kind of very early in that discussion, Josh made the comment that there are people who are real believers that have that issue. That is a problem for them because... While they may be settled with the fact that their sins are all forgiven in the past, they may have questions about, well, what happens when I just sinned yesterday? Because they maybe because you have to be taught that the death of Christ has covered all your sins past into the present. So this is something all people then, all believers would agree on. They would all hold to. What does he say about the fathers? What does he say about them? They know him, okay? So they know, and that word, when he's talking here, um, uh, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known, and he uses the word for experiential knowledge. He says, you've known um, the one from a beginning. Now, who do you think he's referring to when he says that? Anyone want to venture a guess? Okay, just God in general? 
I'm inclined, if you take this, if you just flip back to chapter 1, and notice what he says in verse 1, that which was from a beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked at, beheld, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. This life was manifested. We have seen and bear witness and announced to you the light, the eternal life, which was facing the Father and was made visible to us. But he starts it off, that which was from a beginning, that which even from any time there was a beginning, this one was already existing. And what person is he talking about there? God the Son. God the Son. Okay. So he's talking about God the Son. Now, the, the significance of that, that idea of knowing him, keeping your finger here in 1 John 2, turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Or just remember how to push that back button if you're on a tablet or something, I guess, right? It's funny I say that, <laughs> keep your finger here, but there's so many people that have tablets or phones anymore. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Now notice this is Paul's goal. This is Paul's objective. He says, I want to experientially know him. Who? Who him? Well, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformed to his death. Who is he talking about in verse 10? He's talking about Jesus Christ. Plainly and clearly he's speaking about Jesus Christ because he's the one that was raised. He's the one that has had suffering and still suffers with the church, and he's the one who died. And the Father didn't die. The Father didn't suffer. The Spirit didn't. It's just Jesus Christ. And Paul said this is what he aspired to. His aspiration, the point, the goal in his life on a personal level for him was to experientially know him. He really wanted to get to know Christ, not just know about him, not have a bunch of facts so that he could teach a Bible study about Christ, but actually know him in his experience to say, oh, this is not Paul, this is Christ. And I hope that that's your goal. So if we go back over there to 1 John chapter 2, in verse 13, when he's talking about the fathers, the fathers, he said, are ones. And, and keep in mind, when Paul writes that in Philippians, he's writing that about 60 A.D., Okay, that's about 60 A.D. John is writing 1 John sometime between 90 and 95 A.D. How many years is that in between? Yeah, we're talking about 30 plus years. And John is able to say, as he's writing to these fathers in the church, that there are people in the church, that they have come to know him. Now, let me ask you a question about Paul's statement back there in Philippians 3. You don't have to go back there. But do you think Paul, when he wrote that to the Philippians, do you think Paul was like, boy, I would really like to really know Christ, but I don't know him. Do you think that's what he's saying? He met him on the road. Well, he had met him on the road, yeah. But do you think he knew him, do you think he, in his Christian life, do you think he still was trying to get to know Christ experientially? Yeah, he was. Do you think he had not, did not yet know Christ experientially? I think he did know him experientially. But I... He was almost learning more. That's right. You two have been married 58 years now? 57? 57. Somewhere? 57 years. 50, I should be able to remember that. That's right, because you've got 
because you were married the same day my wife was born. That's right. Okay, so I should be able to remember that. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I could say this is true of myself, but I would say even at 57, sometimes you learn new things about other people. In other words, just because you've been married for 50 plus years doesn't mean you know everything there is to know about that other person. You might find other aspects of a person's personality or get to know, fine tune that, that knowledge that you have. And so I think when Paul says that over in Philippians 3, he says, I'm never going to sit on my hands because there's still more to know. Okay. We change. He doesn't. Yeah. That's right. That's right. We're growing. We're growing. And there's still always more to get to know about. More consistency. More knowing him more consistently in our life. Uh, I almost called you Paul. Josh. <laughs> Exactly. It's not to know. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say? How would you tell this joke? <laughs> no. Now, Josh, whether he knew it or not, we'll give we'll say he knew what he was doing here when he said that. If you go back in First John two, when he's talking about the one who was from the beginning, how did he introduce him back in chapter one? What was he? What did he introduce him as? Did he ever use the title Jesus there back in chapter one? What did he say up there in that, that first verse? The one from the beginning. The one from the beginning. And how did he, what title did he give to him at the end of that verse? The word. The word of life. The word of life. So when Josh is talking about, mentions this, this eternal life like that, what does that mean about these fathers in chapter 2? That they are those who have come to know him and they know how to use eternal life. They've, they've, They've reached this point in their Christian life where they know how to use this. That's right. So they are they are those who are mature. One other question with those guys who are mature, just to be clear on this. If you go over to chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul says, not as though I've arrived. Meaning, it's not as though I know now how to live. I know eternal life. I know Christ. I don't need to grow anymore. No, he says, I haven't arrived at that point. There's still always more, as Josh was encouraging us. So, here in 1 John chapter 2, we have the children, everybody, they all know their sins are forgiven. Secondly, we have the fathers, that they have this experiential knowledge of, uh, we would say, of the son. It says, and I'm writing to your young men. Now, what does he say about the young men? How does he classify them in this, in this passage? What is the? Okay. And we're going to be easy or lazy, and we're going to say victory over Satan. So they, in order to have victory over Satan, what, um, what else do you have to have? What else do you have to know how to do, by the way? Yeah, yeah. Because the very first thing you do before you can put on the armor of God is you have to be strong in the Lord. And how are you strong in the Lord if you're operating in your flesh. 
Okay, so he, so you've got these 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 two groups here, three altogether if you include everybody is being forgiven, but the fathers knowing the one that's from the beginning. Now I'm going to say this about this first one. Even though children refers to everybody, I believe it really, you can take it and you can say since it includes everybody, it also takes that little group of believers that are just brand new Christians and the only thing they know at this moment is I'm forgiven. That's the only thing they really have down yet, okay? They know that they're forgiven. So it is going to include them, but I think that that also includes everybody. Now let's go back through these because he's going to do this and he's going to add this next group that we have in verse, um, the end of verse 13. He's going to add to the young, uh, to this group, these young learners. And what does he say about the young learners? Who do they know? They know the father. Now to me that's very interesting because I... I think not everybody appreciates this because I'm still surprised by how many Christians I run into in different places that, uh, and I, I could get off on this for quite a long time talking about the way people relate to this idea, but, but people that when they pray, they pray, dear Jesus. You never have that in scripture. It's always that you talk to the father. Jesus even said that. But there are a lot of people that are like, they, they, they start off praying to Jesus. And to me, that tells you something about they're still really, really immature when you meet them normally if they're like that because they haven't yet, they haven't yet figured out. They haven't yet been taught. We talk to the Father. We talk to the Father. But not only that, not only that, but I'm surprised by how many Christians I run into that say, I just struggle with God the Father. And you're like, what? And they go, well, I never had a great relationship with my dad. What? Well, I just didn't have a great relationship with my dad because I never really, I have a tough time relating to God the Father. And I don't get that. I'm, I, I wouldn't say that my relationship with my dad was like optimal. It's probably true of all of us. You probably could say the same thing with your mother. You know, they're your parents, you know, and you've got ideas and your parents obviously haven't been through stuff. They have things figured out that you haven't figured out yet. And you have a tough time trying to listen to them. So sometimes you do a little bit of this when you're growing up. Um, but I do think that this is an important, this is an, a, a kind of a, a really good initial step in the growth of these believers to go beyond just being forgiven. But now they've got this person that they talk to. They have this person that they have a relationship to. In fact, uh, when you relate to who you are in Christ, all that's based on what the Father has to say about you. And how you relate to the Father, how you talk to the Father is, is all tied into that. So we have this relationship. This is going to be very important that he says that they know the Father in just a couple minutes here. When we get to the next, when we get down to the, in the context here to, to the problem. And then he goes, uh, five, he's going to say the same thing about the fathers. Okay, so... Um, we're going to go back up and we're just going to transfer number two down here to number five. Okay, we're going to be lazy. They know the one that's from the beginning. He doesn't change anything. Because really, when you reach that point of maturity, it's just learning to do that more consistently, more often in your life, right? So it's not like, oh, now I figured out, now I know Jesus Christ, now I know the Son. What's the next thing to know? 
Well, just know him better. Well, isn't there another? No, just know him better. So he doesn't change what he says to the fathers. There, that's that's where we ought want ought. That's where we ought to wish or want to be. Then he goes on to the next one. And he says, and I've written to you young men because you are, what does he say? Strong. Strong. So they now have some spiritual strength. You need some spiritual strength. And where do you get your spiritual strength, by the way, as believers? In the Lord. Okay, that's where you, that's where you find it. Where do you get it here? No. What? In the inner man. So we'd explain inner man to somebody as what? Inside your heart in here, your lungs, your spleen, in your, this isn't the totality of it, in the realm of your mind. Okay? So what I'm trying to say. This is a mental strength. It's a strength that, that you're going to acquire and it's going to affect you mentally. Because this is where we as believers, when you deal with the Christian life, is the Christian life usually about the fact that you're not strong enough in your arms and your back? No, it's the fact that we have problems keeping this together in our inner man. Okay, that's where we need the strength, in the inner man, keeping this together. So they know how to have that strong strength. That has to do with who they are in Christ. So what's the next thing he says? Okay, God's word and I'm going to break that out, is, uh, is at ease. Whoops. Lost my notes. Where'd it go? Oh, man. I, I somehow and I trashed all of my notes. Sorry about that. Okay. It, God's word is uh, at ease. We're on number six there. Is at ease in them. Okay. I can't even spell now. There we go. Pardon me for that. Okay. So God's word is at ease in them. I probably have the note stuck in there somewhere, and I just didn't see what I did with it. And then the last part of it is, is that they have, again, victory. victory. Yeah, victory over the devil. That's, that is a very big deal. That's a very big deal. It's a very big, it's a very big deal to understand what it is to have victory over the devil, because that means that when... Um, in the church, on the, on the level of the church with believers, the devil is oftentimes, the world system holds baubles out there that get our attention and distract us, right? Shiny things, chase after this. But Satan, Satan as he uses that world system, as he manipulates believers, one of the things he does is he kind of waves before us things about religion that kind of can be very distracting for believers to say, hey, it's real easy to say, why do they garner so much attention and we don't? What are we doing wrong? We need to get Brooklyn a full set of drums up here for Sundays, not just that cajon. We need a full set of drums. That'll, that'll fill this place up. And Ben, let's, let's check the old... Acoustic guitar. Let's get an electric guitar and amp it up. I'm just saying, it's all kinds of things like this that people look at and think, and we can get people here if we figure out what they like about that out there. 
And Satan can really distract us. So having victory over Satan is going to be a big deal in the context of dealing with this problem. So with that then, let's go on down here in 1 John. And let's look at, um, go down to verse 18, which we've already, we already looked at this here a little bit ago. It says in verse 18, and just trying to remind us again when he says this here, that he says in verse 18, he says, little children. And that word little children there is the word paideia. Paideia. So it's the young learners. So the problem he's addressing is not a problem that is really the fathers are having of themselves. And it's not a problem that the young men are particularly struggling with in a big way of themselves, directly with what these guys are doing. But the young learners, these young children, that are just, they're just really starting to take their first steps in growing, they are having problems because these antichrists they'd heard were coming, these antichrists have arrived, and he says, you know this is last hour, but this is what they did. They were in the church. So wherever these churches were that John's writing, most of us believe that they were probably some of the small churches around the vicinity of Ephesus, probably not the seven churches of Revelation, probably closer. He's an older man. He's not making these huge long-distance trips over mountain ranges to get to all these other cities. He's caring for churches out here in this vicinity around Ephesus. We don't know all of this for sure when you read about this, but it says they went out from us. So imagine if you had some people that sat in here, and you hear them say things that you're going, that, that doesn't sound right. No, that, that's not, no, that's not right. And, just come, and it's real easy sometimes when you hear people say things like that, and they're supposed to be Christians, and then you hear them saying things that you're starting to think, I thought they were Christians. They, they just must not, they, I must not be understanding them right. You ever, you ever been in a situation like that? Where you listen to somebody and you're going, well, I thought they were a Christian, but you know what they're saying right now? That doesn't sound right. And so he says they were there, but then they went out. Now, if they just stayed in the church, their problem probably would have probably would have reached ahead in which they would have had to do something about it, and they probably would have had to say, hey, we need you to stop being here. I don't know that they would have done that, but my experience and the experience, I think, that the Word of God says is oftentimes, eventually, if you just really keep teaching the Word right, eventually the people that don't want that are going to leave because they don't like sitting and listening to something that is contrary to what they think, especially if they're not saved. Some of you have been here a long time, and some of you remember early on, probably the first five or six years that we were here, how many people we had from the community that would come in. Some of those people would be here for two or three months, and you're always thinking, oh. But you kept talking with them, and you're like, they're not saved. I'm just, they're just... I'm just positive this person's not a believer. And you're just wondering how long they're going to last. And pretty soon, they're not there anymore. They don't show up. And it's not a surprise. Because they weren't really part of you in the first place. And I watched a lot of that happen in the first several years that we were here. So it says, children, it's the last hour. Just as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen. And from this, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really... What? They weren't really part of us. For if they had been, they would have remained with us. Now, do sometimes believers leave churches? Yeah. 
Because sometimes believers read, leave churches because the man up front, me, is jerk. I sometimes don't treat people nice. I, th I know that there have been people that have been here, and they're not here because I failed to actually handle them kindly. Okay? I was foolish. But he's not talking about believers that maybe had hurt feelings and left or something else. He's talking about these people that plainly were not part of the group. The, even the even these young learners, these paideia, even they know this because they listen to things they're saying. They're going, mm, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. He says, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us or they're not really part of us. Verse 20, but you have an anointing. You have an anointing. Now, this word anointing in here is a reference to which person of the Godhead? Which person of the Godhead does anointing? The Holy Spirit. Scripture actually says the Father anoints us, but he anoints us with the Spirit. He puts the Spirit on people is actually how he does it. But yeah, the Spirit. What is one of the things in the ministry of the Spirit when he comes to us as believers? What's one of the things he does in his ministries? that's going to be related to some of this. Well, let's go to verse 21 and you'll see. Verse 21, he says, I write to you, not because you don't know the truth. I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Let me, I was trying to clear this out. I don't know. I guess you can read it just fine. Who is the liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who, who, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from a beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from a beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But notice what it says. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that no one should teach you. But as his anointing, or as the anointing teaches you about the all things. So what's one of the things that the anointing does according to this verse? He teaches. So John says, it's not that I need to go back over this with you. Now, I believe that they had been taught this, that people had been teaching this. But if you've ever taught a Bible study, sometimes you can teach and you look and you just kind of get a glazed look from people. And maybe it is your fault, but most of the time, to be real honest, I think it's because you have people that aren't spiritual or people that aren't saved. And if they're that way, you can teach them the Word of God, and it doesn't make sense to them. They may be able to repeat it back to you, but that doesn't mean that it makes sense to them. It's as John said, or Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 2, for the unsaved person, he does not welcome the things from the Spirit of God because those things are foolishness to him. He looks at him and goes, that's, that's silly. You want me to abide in a position in Christ? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, it makes no sense to them. Silly. So they don't welcome it. They, they reject it. But even believers who are not spiritual, they will reject that because likewise their mind, they're working on a fleshly level. And again, kind of like the unsaved man, that's kind of silly. 
Just tell me. Can I eat pork or can I not? That's all I want to know. Can I mow my lawn on Sunday? That's all I want to know. Is it okay if I tell a white lie? So they just want rules. That's all they want to know. They don't, they don't want to be taught to rest in Christ and let the Spirit lead you. They want a set of rules. That's all they want. And to being taught to do this other. So we have this, so that the anointing is teaching them. Now let me ask you another question there. Uh, and this is, this is, we could get into a whole other Bible study on this thing too down there, but at the end of verse 20, or towards the end of verse 27, even as his anointing teaches you about, the New American Standard here says, or the ESV says everything, or some of your Bibles say all things. Does the Holy Spirit teach you all things? When you got saved, did the Holy Spirit teach you mechanical engineering? Chemical engineering? All spiritual things. So the minute you got saved, the minute every Christian gets saved, they fully understand that the Gospels are about Jesus' earthly ministry to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. No, they don't get that either. <laughs> and we do have an issue that over in Ephesians 4, he does say that he gave teachers, didn't he, among the gifts. So there has to be a reason he gives teachers. What he's talking about here when he says that he teaches you all things, he's saying, what he's getting at, these things that I'm talking about, the Holy Spirit's already taught you this. So that, backing up to what we are talking about, about teaching people in the church, when you teach, you can, you can go the extra mile. You can, you can work way harder than Jim does putting together this long word study to go through and prove to you what this word means so you understand it in this one passage. And if you've got somebody out there that's not spiritual at that moment in time, they can be like, what? What? <laughs> they still don't get it. They still don't get it. The whole, In other words, when the word of God is presented, when anybody here at church or any Bible study you attend, any place where you are, when they teach the word of God, if you're spiritual and they've communicated what the Word of God really says, the Holy Spirit can take that truth and he can fit it together in your thinking so that you're going, oh, oh, that's what that's about. Oh, and he fits this together for us in a way that I can't fit it together. Now, that doesn't release us from being responsible to teach the Word accurately and well. know they're young and don't have a lot of experience and don't know a lot, they know enough to know that, that what these guys are saying doesn't line up with what they already know. That's right. That's right. Now, let's go back up and let's put together a couple of the things he says about these antichrists. So let's go back up here in this context. And what does he say? What are the two things about these antichrists? He's going to mention two truths that these antichrists have issues with. Okay, so let's go to verse 22. Who is a liar but the one who, what does it say? Okay, so for them, Jesus is not the Christ. So, let's take a minute with this. Christ, what do we know about who what, when, we, when we describe Jesus as Christ or the Christ, 
What are we saying about him? What, are the, what, what does that mean for us as New Testament believers? For, first of all, what, is it, what does the title Christ mean? Anointed. It means anointed one. For Israel, he was anointed to be their king. Is that the emphasis for you and I? No, that's, that's not the emphasis for you and I. So, what is the emphasis of that title Christ or anointed one for you and I? Okay, he is a jump. Say it again really loud, Ronnie. Okay, okay. So I'm going to put this just because this is the way I'm accustomed to writing this. And this is out of, out of uh, um, Acts 2.36 and some supporting texts there in Acts chapter 2. First of all, you're laying emphasis on the fact that he is now the anointed one because he's resurrected. Okay, he's resurrected. But he's not only resurrected, but he's also, and you said glorified, right? Yeah. Okay. So he's glorified. Over there in, in uh, uh, Acts 2, it, it says exalted. Okay. And that has to do with what, with what aspect of his person? His divinity or his humanity? Glorified? Yeah. What, what was glorified? Was his, was his humanity glorified or his deity glorified? His humanity, because human, his humanity was resurrected, and his humanity was glorified. He didn't lose any of his glorious deity, never. But his humanity is going to share some glory. He talked about that over in John 17. Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. And he's talking about the realm of his humanity. He's sharing this. So, first thing he tells us is that these antichrists... They're saying that Jesus is not resurrected. Look down in chapter 3. Chapter 4, excuse me. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test or prove the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit from God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in flesh is from God. That expression, has come in flesh, is in the, in the Greek, in the perfect tense. Meaning Jesus Christ came in flesh, and he still is in flesh. We have the same idea over in 2 John. And hopefully you've made a mark for that in your Bible if you don't, or you already your Bible has a, a reference to that. So here we have Jesus being in flesh. Verse 3, however, every spirit that does not confess Jesus. Now, this is an ellipsis. Does not confess Jesus what? Having come in flesh. Okay? This one is, is Antichrist. It's not from God, excuse me, but is Antichrist. And you've heard that he is coming and now already is in the world. So we understand what an antichrist is. One of the things they, they believe is they don't believe Jesus is God. Or excuse me, they don't believe Jesus is in flesh. They don't believe he's resurrected. There's a group of people. They live, I know, they come up and down our street every once in a while, knocking on doors with their little briefcases and everything. And we'll just use their initials. They're called JWs. And JWs do not believe Jesus is resurrected. They believe, they say, oh yeah, he rose, but he didn't raise bodily. 
His body dissolved and he went back to being an angel because they believed he was an angel that became a man, died, and when he resurrected, the body disappeared and he went back to being an angel. They don't believe he's resurrected and glorified in this way. So this is somebody that we live around that falls under the classification of an antichrist. Go back up to chapter 2. Go back up to chapter 2. Let's look at the next thing, the next issue that we have with these, with these people. Oh, by the way, let's stop and think about something here. How, what, what, how does this idea of being resurrected and glorified, how does that affect your Christian life? Many ways. Because what is probably one of the, what is, what is one of the things next to encouraging to love one another, what is one of the things that you hear come out of my mouth a lot? And if you've been in Josh's Sunday afternoon Bible studies, this is what he's teaching on. Our position in Christ. And your position in Christ is foundational. It's, shall we say, it's the key. It's the ignition to the Christian life. It's what you get to do. You get to set your mind to that, to turn that key so that the rest of this works the way it's supposed to. But it starts with this, which means for the paideia, they're just starting to mature, just starting to grow. They're just learning some things. If they get messed up by this thing that these antichrists have said, and this throws them a little bit, <clears throat> it has the potential of really negatively affecting their Christian life, doesn't it? <clears throat> it has the potential to affect that. What's the second thing, though, that they talk about here? Let's go to verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is an antichrist. The one who denies, what does it say? The Father and the Son. Now, how do they deny the Father and the Son? Well, what does it say in verse 23? Whoever denies the Son. Okay. So they deny the Son. Now, let me ask you a question about the Trinity. Is the Trinity three gods? Is the Trinity three gods? No, it's one God. One God, but that one God is three distinct persons that share the entirety of what it means to be his God. If you, no, he doesn't even bring the Holy Spirit into this because the Holy Spirit isn't, isn't an issue here. The issue has to do with the Son. But what he's trying to say is, if you deny that the Son is God, you also deny the Father. You can't have the Son without the Father. And so really what you're doing when you're denying the Son, you're saying that the Son would do this, Son is not God. You're saying the Son's not God. Now what do you get because the Son's God? Again, in the book of 1 John. In fact, it's the very thing that this book started off talking about. What do you get? You get eternal life. You get eternal life, and you can't use eternal life, or you can't, you don't have eternal life if the Son's not God. How do you get eternal life with respect to the Son? He has eternal life, and He dwells in you, and He shares that life with you there. Still remember, I've got a little book that C.I. Schofield wrote back like 1901 or something like that, and in there he says, 
we need to get rid of the idea in our mind that it's like we picked a seed over here uh, that's eternal life and implanted it into something else. He says it's actually not that. You actually took God the Son in you, and that's how you get eternal life. But he says a lot of people think it's like God has this, there's this eternal life out there, and God takes some of that eternal life and sticks it in you. Like it's separate. You have eternal life because you're in direct union with God the Son. So if they deny the Son. So they've actually denied two things that are foundational to your Christian life. They're denying that you have a position in Christ because Jesus isn't resurrected and glorified. And number two, there's nothing to live out because you can't have eternal life. And yet, what does he say? What does he say in verse 25? This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. He promised us eternal life. These two things that the Antichrist denied, who was having a problem with them? These young, these young believers, yeah, these paideia. Now let me ask you a question, because there's this, just about out of time, so I want to try to keep this short. Let's see, think about this. When he writes to these groups of people in the church, there is an issue going on that's a larger issue. You look at this and you think, I think this is kind of like, the, the thing, this is the catalyst that set this problem in motion. But the problem, that catalyst is expressing a, a bigger, more serious issue in the church. And it's an issue where these people, some of them, are lacking love. Because love is, in the book of 1 John, chiefly expre an expression of eternal life. It's not the only thing that expresses eternal life. But it is, from John's perspective, it's one of the chief ways that you express eternal life. And yet, if Jesus isn't God, you don't have it. And if Jesus is not alive, is not resurrected, you, don't, you, you have no way to access him. What should the fathers and the young men have been doing for these paideia? They should have been coming alongside. They should have been coming in to help. They should have been encouraging them. John shouldn't have had to write this letter. They should have been sitting down and saying, hey, you know what? They weren't part of us. Let's talk about who Jesus Christ is. Who is Jesus Christ? You tell me. And these young believers should have been able to say, well, he's alive. Is he God? Yes. So you have a position and you have eternal life. They should have been able to walk them through these things, but because they haven't done this. And one of the things I think is important is, is it shows you that even if you are, even if, and this goes back to kind of talking about, let's go back to the fathers, because I'm going to, we'll pick on us. This is why I'm saying, I think this applies to, applies to all of us here. All of you here are mature enough. I, I can even hope that most of us here are at the level we could say we're fathers. But just because you're a father, just because, as he says in here, you've known the one that is from a beginning, as we have there in verse 13, just because you know it doesn't mean you do so consistently. And it doesn't mean that just because a person has a need, you always recognize that need and you, you address that need. And sometimes that need isn't always the need you have in chapter 3 where a person needs food and clothing. Sometimes the need is somebody needs some help and correction because they're getting kind of addled up here by some things that have happened in their life. And they need sometimes these people to step up and say, hey, 
Let's sit down and talk about what these people were teaching. Let's, let's think about what they said. And let's think about, even more importantly, who are we in Christ? Let's stop and think about who Jesus Christ is and what that means for the way you live right now. And sitting on our hands as Christians is not the thing that a spiritual Christian is going to do when you have a believer that has this kind of meaning. Now, you can't strong arm him to correct him. I think we all understand that. In fact, that would be contrary to the word we read over there in Galatians 6.1. It says that you restore such a one, and that was a believer caught in a trespass. It doesn't say these people are caught in a trespass. They're just kind of addled by what's happened here. But when you deal with them, he says you do so in a spirit of meekness. Peg and I were talking about this word the other, the other afternoon. Meekness is the difference, in my opinion, between a dog that is trained and tame and a dog that is not trained and tame. You can have, you can have a big, fierce, huge dog that could just tear a person to shreds. But they've been taught by their master to obey. They've been taught by their master not to jump all over people. They've been taught by their master to be kind, to only do what their master tells them to do. And then there are those people that have those little, my wife calls them ankle biters. They're, you know, they might scrape your ankle. Their teeth might even puncture the skin a little bit, maybe. But they're not really a threat to you. But can those little ankle biters sometimes... Well, sometimes they lack a lot of control. Their master's standing there telling them, hey, stop, come back here, come back here, come back here. And they're standing in their yard, and they're out there chasing you as you walk by in the street, and they're right behind you. Every time you turn around, they're like, rrr, rrr, rrr. the minute you turn and walk again, rrr, they come right back, they're running right back at you again like that. And they're not trained well. It's the difference between tame and untame, and that's what the background of that word meek meant. When you do this, you've got this power that God makes available to you but you rein it in and you are controlled. You're tame in the way that you deal with them. You don't lash out. You're not snarling. You're not biting. You're not snapping. You're not threatening. You're tame. And that word was used. My wife still likes the illustration of horses with blinders to keep them focused on going down the road. I like the dog one because I am not a dog guy. Okay, I am not, I've never been a dog guy because every dog, whether they're this big or this big, they always look at me as a juicy piece of hamburger. You know, this is, I've dealt with this since I was a kid. My sister and I could walk up to the same dog. My, the dog walks up to my sister and it's like, <laughs> come over to me. And so I'm going, oh, this dog will be nice. And the dog comes and will snap and bite my hand. I'm like, what in the world? I, my wife is convinced I give off an odor that the dogs can smell. They can smell the fear on me or something. I don't know. But back to the point. I, dig, I digress quite a bit there. The whole point is coming over here. The Antichrists were a problem because they denied one of two things, maybe both, but one of two things. I think they really denied both of those things because I think they, they divided Jesus from God. And so they said this Jesus died, but he didn't rise again, but he also wasn't God. So I think that they really were holding to both of these. By the way, what group of people fall under category number two? Well, Jehovah's Witnesses and also Mormons. And probably you would be surprised, both of those, how many people are going to Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Catholic churches, 
and they might assent to a doctrinal statement that's assent, but they don't really believe those things. I still remember years ago a person that attended another church in this town. This is quite a few years ago, um, and I remember Leslie asked she shared the gospel with this person, and this person was worried about the Mormons with one of their kids. And Leslie was telling her, well, you know, their problem is that they have a problem with Jesus being God. And this lady goes, Jesus is God? I know Jesus is God. I thought he's the son of God. See, so she's going to another church, and she, she just shows you, but she goes to another church, but she's got to, she would have fallen under this category. She didn't think Jesus is God. He's the son of God, and she meant by son of God the same way that her son was, you know. The reason we're looking at this, the reason we took the time to do this today is because, to me, this has been interesting thinking through this over the last few weeks, but also, for me, thinking about the fact that this shows you that you and I have responsibility to these people. That when we see believers that are getting sucked in and caught in with these problems, we have, we have a responsibility to actually go and say, hey, what, what, what does the word say? What does the word say about Jesus? What's true about him? Father, we're thankful for the time that you've given us together. And as we think about the fact that we, at times, are going to run into believers, believers maybe even that we assemble with, that are going to struggle, perhaps maybe with some of these issues, perhaps because of immaturity. Even maybe they've been saved for a long time, but they've never really matured or grown. Lord, if you have been helping us grow, if you've been bringing us along, which we know that that's your goal, then we have a responsibility to be able to be used by you, to allow you to use us in their life, to help them see what's true about your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time together and uh, for your word and ask that you just help us to be very, uh, uh, very caring as the way we look for others in the body of Christ and the needs that each other face. And we thank you for it then. Amen.